0: Welcome to Pocket Economics, a guide to changing lives. It's our podcast about the ideas which are shaping the EBRD regions and beyond. I'm Jonathan Charles. Today, we're discussing the future of development finance with our guest, Owen Bader, Vice President at the Centre for Global Development. Owen's also a visiting professor at the London School of Economics and a specialist advisor to the UK House of Commons International Development Committee. He'll be helping us to understand the goals, priorities and challenges of development finance. Now, as usual on this programme, we try to define our terms. So what do we mean by development finance? Development finance, by one definition, funds economic and social progress across national boundaries, particularly, but not exclusively, in the world's poorer countries. An ever greater priority for such finance is sustainable development, development that meets the needs of today without compromising the planet's future. Development finance has, as a rule, been the responsibility of bilateral development agencies or so-called international financial institutions, such as the World Bank or the EBRD. Either way, national governments have always played a major role in running the bodies that raise and manage development finance. How does that definition sound to you, Owen? Does it capture what development finance is really there for? Uh,
1: Yes and no, Jonathan. Uh, The yes part is that I think it's a description of what it is we're trying to achieve with finance. Uh, It captures it. But I think it emphasises too much the role of external finance, when in fact most development finance is financed locally. If you think of investment, for example, if you look at developing countries, about 7% of total investment is financed by direct uh, uh, investment from overseas, and maybe about another 4% portfolio. So about 85% uh, of investment in developing countries is financed by local capital markets. If you think about spending on things like health and education, things that governments do. Uh, again it's mainly financed by local taxpayers there's there's foreign aid in many countries but it but so i think we have a tendency in those of us who work in development to put ourselves too much at the center of it and and recognize too little that developing countries themselves the citizens the firms the markets the institutions they're really what drives development and we can help and we should help and it's important but we're not the heart of development finance the heart of development finance comes from those countries themselves.
0: And actually that's an interesting point isn't it because increasingly on a local level we're seeing more and more uh, local development finance institutions being set up.
1: That's exactly right to channel domestic savings into uh, worthwhile projects and activities in those countries and and you would expect that uh, internal finance to be very important going forward.
0: Now we're concentrating today on the future of development finance. What are the current goals that finance is supposed to deliver?
1: well as your listeners will know the uh, world community came together uh, in 2015 and agreed the global goals these 17 high level goals and a, a series of targets underneath them to make the world a better place to uh, not only to deliver the health and education commitments that the world had made uh, at, the be- at the beginning of the uh, millennium but also to focus on economic growth on creating jobs on sustainability making sure that that growth doesn't come at the cost of the planet, but also to think about inequality and making sure that we leave no one behind. So the mission now uh, is to deliver uh, that agenda by 2030. It's a, it's a very broad, universal agenda for, for the entire planet. And development finance has a huge task ahead of it if it's going to finance that kind of transformation in, uh, over
0: the coming years. We're 12 years away now from that 2030 deadline uh, for those SDGs. It's not a long time, 12 years, is it? But do you think leaders and decision makers are paying enough attention to that deadline? Uh,
1: no, I don't. Um, I think as we think about how to accelerate this, we should focus in part on how far we've come. Um, you know, it's been an extraordinary 50 years. We've had the fastest reduction in global poverty, uh, enormous changes. You know, we, we're now vaccinating well over 80% of children mm. around the world against, uh, against key diseases. Uh, more and more kids are going to school. We're, so we've made huge progress, and, and the uh, proportion of the world living in absolute poverty halved. Um, so we stand on the bring, The question is, can, can we mm. now maintain that momentum? We would need to accelerate it. If we, if we continue with business as usual, we won't get there by 2030. Um, so we should have the confidence of having been successful, and a lot of that success has come from uh, economic growth in places like China and India, which has lifted people out of poverty. This hasn't been a success entirely for the aid mm. industry or the development finance business. This has been a success for the spread of mar- successful market economies and good government, uh, the, the spread of democracy. But we have, to, we have to seize that optimism that we can go further and faster. Uh, and I'd, at the moment, I don't think we're doing that. If anything, we appear to be in a, in a period of rough patch of, of working mm. internationally. Uh, and that that doesn't bode well for, for making
0: sure that we reach the targets. Okay, let's address uh, some of the solutions to that in just a second. But just before we do that, what you're really saying then is that it's a very different application to the problem that is required compared to, say, the way we approach the millennium development goals.
1: That's right. It does look different from uh, the last 20 years. Um, but... Actually if you cast your mind back to the beginning of the development finance uh, institutions at the end of the Second World War um, that that period from the end of the Second World War until the early 70s uh, there was actually quite a lot of interest in uh, investing in infrastructure investing in jobs the first world bank loans mm. you remember was to France mm. uh, for their uh, for the Monet plan yes, yep. uh, to get you know f- and and what you saw was a, a period of optimism and very rapid growth. So, I mean, the world economy was growing by around 5% a year until the mid-70s. And at that time, development finance was really uh, getting behind those mm. economic objectives as well as the social objectives. Then you had the uh, the oil price shock in the mid-70s, you had rising unemployment, and you had the debt crisis that really hit especially Africa mm-hmm. and Latin America. And there you began to see a divergence. So China and East Asia grew even faster, 7% a year, while Africa... Growth uh, collapsed two percent a year, and what happened then was development finance sort of shifted to deal with the conso- with the social consequences mm. of the economic stagnation that you were seeing in those. So you were looking at countries. more budget support in those. Days, so no? you were getting more budget support, and a lot of that was being spent in social sectors, in health and in education. Mm. There was much less private money coming in because there was no there were fewer investable opportunities, mm. less growth to get behind fewer successful firms. So what you saw was government money coming in behind social services. And development finance uh, through that period, through the period of the MDGs, uh, was really supporting uh, a lot of these human capital investments. Hmm. What what we need to see now is a a continuation of that. That job is not yet finished. We certainly need to, to not let those social sectors fall behind. But we also need to be creating the jobs, doing the infrastructure investment and the other kinds of investment, that bring economic growth so it's it's a swing back to some of the ideas before the 70s uh, or f- up until the mid 70s uh, that we saw but i think on on a bit of a different basis than we saw then
0: all right we'll move on to that solution in a second just a reminder you're listening to pocket economics the ebrd podcast on how economic ideas help to change people's lives i'm jonathan charles today we're discussing the future of development finance with owen Bader. And Owen, we recognize, as we've been saying in the past few minutes, development goals can't be achieved without crowding in private capital, the involvement of private capital. There isn't enough public money around to lift the world further, further up uh, on the development scale. So how's that going to happen?
1: So I think we uh, often talk as if the way development happens is that we push money in and uh, we crank a handle and outcomes (coughs) Uh, better firms and, and uh, fast-growing economies and more jobs and higher incomes. I actually think, it, in many ways, it's the other way around, that, that as you develop the successful market economies, um, what you have is opportunities to invest, and that pulls in the capital. And that can be private capital, it can be development finance institutions, it can be uh, aid money. But it, it isn't that pushing in the money will generate the economic growth and the opportunities. Uh, the money is going to be needed at a very large scale when, as economies develop and as we begin to move on to a path to meet uh, the goals. So the key thing that's got to happen is not uh, to push more and more money into the system, but to figure out what needs to change to develop those investable opportunities. And what what development finance does is, uh, and and I think we o- often forget this, it's not the, it's not the money that is most important. What's most important is bringing uh, the skills, the ability to manage risk, the idea of nations working together and sharing those risks, of learning from each other, of different countries at different stages of their development learning from each other, of tackling the transnational problems that don't otherwise get cha- uh, tackled, uh, things like infrastructure across borders, which is very hard to invest in a particular country. Those are the kinds of challenges that development finance can help solve by, bri- by bringing that expertise and, and those ideas, engaging with stakeholders that private investors find it hard to engage with, working with governments, getting the policy environment right. If you get those things right, you create the investable propositions that development finance, whether it's public or private, can get behind. But what we, what we shouldn't do is start with the, f- with the money end of it and think mm. if we push more money in, that will create the good projects because that's not how it works.
0: But on the other hand, very clearly, what you're saying is, if we don't get the money in, the chances of hitting the 2030 deadline are pretty minimal for the SDGs, for example. Uh,
1: I think that is uh, what I'm saying, but I um, uh, I don't want that to be understood mm, as is right. often people often hear that as. Um, what we need to do, you know we what we need to do is get money to finance not so good projects mm, mm. that if if money is only going after yep. good projects right. and there aren't enough of those then what we need to do is get the money in behind some not so good projects no what we need to do is get a better deal flow mm. of good projects and the money will come into that so yes we need we if the money isn't there we will have a problem but but the solution to this is to have more and better projects not to have Uh, more money going in after increasingly less good things.
0: Well, we're sitting here inside the European Bank for Reconstruction and Development. That has pretty much been the EBRD model from the very beginning in 1991. And increasingly, of course, the EBRD model is the leveraging of money uh, for reform. That's um, right. Marrying together policy reform I, with financing.
1: I hate the the verb leveraging in that context, but other it's than that, it's not a that, very that, nice word, other, is other than that, I agree with you. <laughs> I mean, I think of the money as being a platform, as a vehicle for getting the ideas, the expertise, the stakeholders together to make project in different projects into good projects, and and that actually is what what capital does internationally mm. and nationally, right? Wh- what you want from your financial sector is not just that they bring the money, but they bring the expertise, yes. the ability to manage risk, to manage innovation, that's what And the dialogue with governments. And the dialogue with governments, for, no. with governments, no. for mm-hmm. example. That's what you want uh, from your financial institutions, not just the money.
0: So that's the EBRD model. What can we do better? What can the EBRD do better as an example of how to, how to get this delivered? Mm-hmm.
1: So I think there's a range of things that the system as a whole, uh, including the EBRD, needs to do better. Um, the EBRD, of course, focuses primarily on the private sector, not yes. only, um, but um, one of the questions is how we can do a better job of delivering um, public goods, um, mm. whether they're national mm-hmm. public goods or regional or global public goods. And, and some in parts of the uh, international financial system, uh, we've really failed to invest in those. There are Mm. huge opportunities for everyone if we're going to meet the global goals. Uh, And the question is, do we have the right kind of business models to do that? That will require some public money to be blended in with Mm. private money, because uh, almost by definition, the private sector itself won't pay for public goods. uh, That's that's not how it works. So we have to figure out how to Mm. use governments and public money combined with private money to deliver those things. And at, at the moment, I don't see... Uh, the international financial institutions doing that. I think that um, the institutions have, um, and I think this isn't a criticism of the institutions themselves, it's a criticism of their shareholders, their, their, their governance. Uh, the governance is, is pretty poor in a, in a number of ways. Uh, one way is that uh, the shareholders of these different banks uh, and different organisations uh, don't have a strategic view about what they want these different organisations to do. Uh, and so you have a lot of duplication uh, and a lot of gaps. So
0: better coordination is needed on a country level probably. Better
1: better coordination (laughs) is needed at the country level, and I think there's also a perverse incentive for all the different organisations that can to get into every project, Mm. and they all claim, oh, we've leveraged money from all these different actors when all that's happened is lots of different organisations have piled into Mm. the same project. Mm. I think actually it'd be better if you had fewer organizations in some of these projects taking a lead in them Mm. putting the money in and and if each bank was involved Mm. uh, with a larger stake in a smaller number of projects uh, what you might get is less overlapping less duplication less administration but also less um, annoyances for the people managing the projects with all the different procurement rules and safeguarding rules and so on that that the different organizations bring so there's a there's a lot of the incentive on a lot of the organizations is to get the money out the door Mm. And the the consequence of that is partly some bizarre claims about additionality and leverage, uh, and it's also a lot of people uh, uh, trampling over each other. And you you could begin to see... I would actually, in some ways, like to see not so much coordination, but competition. Mm. I mean, I would like to see the best bank for the job Uh, be the organization that that leads the work and there to be some choice about that but not to have everybody else involved in it too so i'm i'm not sure that i want some committee deciding who goes where i would quite like a comparative advantage to be developed and and exposed by who wins the business i don't exactly know how how you would do that uh, but it isn't obvious to me that Um, some grand coordination mechanism is what's needed i think we should encourage skills over geography
0: is one way it's been put
1: right (laughs) and 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 let the skills speak for themselves and Mm -hmm. let people decide and actually the uh, ebrd has been a good example of that because you have (laughs) you know you've been asked to expand your geographical coverage because you bring skills Mm -hmm. and experience that other organizations don't have i actually think that's how it should be i think i think deciding uh deciding who you want based on what they can do rather than uh, some mandate decided by the international system is, is the right way to determine these things. But what we need to make sure of is that uh, we then uh, don't have too much duplication and overlapping. Mm-hmm. Also, the governance of these systems needs to change. Um, we, I think the resident boards in a lot of international financial institu- institutions are a colossal waste of time and money and, and make decisions slow and difficult and add very little uh, benefit to the process um i think there should be more voice from the borrowing countries uh, i think the idea that you run these um global cooperatives as one dollar one vote is is bizarre actually uh, in the modern era and we're seeing the effects of that uh, we see for example china setting up uh, independently from the washington institutions why because they don't feel they have enough say and enough ability to contribute uh, to the world bank and the imf and the washington-based institutions so they go somewhere else uh, and we need to change that. We need to run these things as mutual cooperatives of, na- uh, uh, mutual cooperatives of nations and not merely as the old Washington and old Europe uh, running financial institutions uh, uh, as they like it. So, for example, we can't go on having the US appointing the president of the World Bank and Europe appointing the managing director of the IMF. That just makes no sense in the 21st century.
0: Interesting debate and um, some provocative thoughts. Thank you very much indeed, Owen. Uh, that's unfortunately all we've got time for today. If you're interested in learning more about this subject, you can visit ebrd.com or listen to our episode with uh, our president, Suma Chakrabarti, who also spoke on the on these issues. Meanwhile, you can share your thoughts with us on anything you've heard at EBRD on Twitter and Facebook. Visit iTunes, SoundCloud and ebrd.com slash podcast to download the previous episodes. And remember, reviewing and rating Pocket Economics Helps others to find it, so help us. Until next time, goodbye.